one of the most difficult and controversial decisions that any government has to make is to commit troops into battle. So for example, Tony Blair was Prime Minister of this country for 10 years, but many judged those entire 10 years pretty much on one decision. The decision of the same forces into Iraq. And I've no intention of commenting on the rights or wrongs. Others, including people here, way more knowledgeable than I am on that. But in the various inquiries and reports which followed, something which has been highlighted was that at times the forces lacked vital equipment, or that some of the equipment they did have wasn't up to the job that they were being asked to do. It was inadequate, it was unreliable. And the Chilcot inquiry lamented that this put people's lives in danger. More recently, particularly in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, we became aware of medical staff working with insufficient supplies of personal protective equipment, or PPE. And according to the British Medical Association, the processes for training and ensuring that these things fit properly and work properly were inadequate. The subsequent scramble to secure more supplies led to PPE being purchased from organisations who had no idea what they were doing, deliveries of PPE that were unsuitable for use, and the lack of transparency surrounding the deals that were struck to source it. Medical professionals often went without PPE, recycling items that were only supposed to be used once, used PPE that was out of date, or used items that people had donated from their own house or, or made their own. And many felt pressured to work without adequate protection, but felt that they couldn't speak up about it. And that's not, no, that's my words. That was the British Medical Association said all that. <coughs> and it's probably always been the case to some extent, but increasingly more people who work, and not just in the public sector, express frustration that they're being asked to do a job and then they're not properly resourced or properly equipped for the task they're given or that they're constantly trying to squeeze more and more out of ever-decreasing resources. And, and, and maybe some of you who work on kind of recognise that frustration that I've been in. And the two that I've highlighted are just extreme examples where it was genuinely dangerous. And this thing of being properly equipped and reliably equipped and resourced for a task assigned to us is a major thing in the passage we shared together this morning. We're returning to our Community Bible Experience series. If you have followed the readings this week, you'll have spent time in some letters written by a man named Paul. I introduced him in a couple of sermons I did just before I went on holiday. And Paul is really, really influential in our Bibles. Of the 27 books of our New Testament, his name is attached to 13 of them, and in half of another one, the Acts of the Apostles, is devoted to telling the story of how he took the good news of Jesus into the Gentile world. And it's safe to say that apart from Jesus himself, Paul is probably the most influential person in the Christian faith. And what we have from him are some, let or some letters written to different communities and people. Some of them were to churches he founded, some of them were to people he never met. 
Some were addressed to individual co-workers like Timothy or Titus, while Philemon is addressed to an individual member of a particular church. But in our Bibles, they don't actually appear in the order that they were written. They're ordered more according, roughly to, according to the length, which doesn't necessarily help us see how Paul's thought develops over time. And it does develop. And the community Bible experience tries to put them in a kind of rough chronological order. We can never be absolutely sure of these things. But you know, it's, a re it's a reasonably intelligent guesswork what order that they were written in. And you can probably break them down into three different blocks. Some of them were written when he was first on the road. First and second Thessalonians, Corinthians, Romans and Galatians. And then Paul goes to Jerusalem where he's arrested and as a Roman citizen he appeals to be tried in Caesar's court. He's taken off to Rome where for at least a couple of years he awaited trial because the clogged up judicial system was clearly not just a modern phenomenon. During that time he wrote more letters and these include what we know as Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians and Philemon. And at least three of those, Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon, were written roughly around the same time and delivered by the same people to different to similar places. And they, these are commonly called Paul's prison letters. Then, towards the end of his life, he writes to Timothy twice and to Titus, but they seem to come closer to the end when he kind of knows he's going to be executed. And most of this week, if you've been following the passage, you'll have been in those prison letters. And today we turn to a short, quite well-known passage in one of those books, Ephesians. And one of the things that Paul unpacks in Ephesians is about how the life of faith is a battle. This wouldn't necessarily be one of my go-to images. I think when you kind of mix religion and warfare, particularly in the climate we're in at the moment, it can be quite dangerous. But it's one of the images that the Bible gives us, and so we work with it. Now, I know I come back to these pictures quite a bit in the next few weeks, well, in a few weeks we've been in this series, but they do help to unpack some of what is going on. Because I showed you these pictures several times, that, like how we live in a world where we have this network of relationships. At the top, we have, this is God, we live here, we live in relationship with God. Then we also live in relationship with other people, with creation, and even with ourselves. And when all of those things are working in harmony, the Bible has a word for that. The word is shalom, peace, well-being. But the thing is, our world isn't working. At the root of all of this is what the Bible calls sin. And that's more than just the petty little things we often get hung up about. And I'm not saying they don't matter, it's just that it's more than that. In the Bible, sin has infiltrated itself and got itself rooted and entangled in every <coughs> aspect of life, breaking down these relationships. It causes us to hide from God, to not trust God, to question whether God even loves us. It damages our relationships with one another, from the very basic falling out between two people, 
right through to the kind of conflicts that we see in our news and the amount of death that those bring. It, perhaps our generation more than any other is aware of how human behaviour has and human choices have caused great damage to our world, to our environment. And relations with ourselves are damaged too. We live with shame. People are so uncomfortable often with who they are. We hide behind the masks that we present to the world. We find it hard to live with that sense of we are loved, we are valued, we are precious, just because. Just this morning I was listening, I watched a very short video of one of my all-time sporting heroes, Thierry Henry. And uh, he was talking with some other football pundits, and he was saying about how, basically, his entire career, he had all this fame, all this adulation, all of these people telling him how brilliant he was, all the awards he won, the one thing that was missing in his life was that he still didn't feel he was good enough because his father had never said it to him. We can't live with this sense of how many of us feel a lot of the time we're feigning it, we're, we're winning it, we, we, we don't really have this. And all of us all of this leaves our will very different from what God intended. God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. And the coming of Jesus is about God establishing his kingdom. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are about healing all of these relationships. And the Bible describes that in different ways and different places. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about the renewal of all things. In an early sermon in Acts, Peter addresses a crowd and talks about a time coming for God to restore all things as promised long ago through his holy prophets. Paul's preferred word is reconciling all things. In Corinthians, he talks of us being reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then as his mission grows bigger and bigger, so his understanding of what Jesus did grows bigger and bigger. And in Colossians, he speaks of God through Jesus, reconciling to himself all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven. In Ephesians, he has a very similar idea of God planning to bring unity to all things on earth and in heaven under Christ. And God's ultimate purpose is for the renewal, the restoration, the reconciliation of all things. Healing all of this. Putting the whole show back together again. And that's the big overarching story of the Bible. It's why God sent Jesus into the world. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, God's victory is ultimately assured. He will truly rescue and bless the world. But for now, we live in an in-between time. Some things are better, but not there yet. 
And that's not something we should be unfamiliar with. Yet when we elect a new government, it doesn't automatically undo all that the previous government did, and it certainly doesn't undo all the consequences, good or bad, that emerge from their actions and decisions and choices. And as a new government comes in and seeks to make changes, they will face opposition. People will try to stop them achieving their ends. There will be those who liked the old way. They don't want it to change. And again, I'm not talking about the rights or wrongs. I'm just describing this is how it works. And so it is with God seeking to establish his kingdom. The consequences of a world gone wrong weren't just undone the moment Jesus declared it is finished and died on the cross. It wasn't undone when he stepped out of the grave into the garden or even when he ascended into heaven. Still so much of the way God wants the world to work is not the way it is working. And that is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we know things on earth are not being done the way God would want them. And there will be those for whom the current setup suits very well, thank you very much. They don't want things to change. They don't want God's will to be done. Certainly not if it's inconvenient or challenging for them. And we shouldn't be surprised at that because, I mean, sometimes it's not just out there that that's true, it's the same within us. That we might know of areas God wants us to change, but we resist. Partly because change is hard. We spend our entire lives developing how we view and manage the world. And even when we do truly want to change and submit to God, it is a struggle. And when we follow Jesus, we have a lot of unlearning to do, to put off old ways and take on new ones. It's a simple fact of life that no matter what is, no change for the better has ever come easily. There has been no development of human history that has come without struggle. Pretty much without fail, whatever it is, there will be those who stood in the way. Who's warned that if we do this, it will be disastrous. The old way is better. There will be those who try to stop it. No one has ever changed anything worthwhile and had it easy. And the same is true when we are consciously working in partnership with God. Now notice what Paul doesn't do. Paul doesn't make enemies out of people. Paul looks behind that to see spiritual forces at work in the world, trying to stop God fulfilling his purposes. He says that there are powers at work in the world. Some of them are very earthly. They're systems, they're power bases, they're accepted worldviews. Whatever you want to call them, they're there. But also Paul digs deeper 
and speaks of something else, something less tangible or visible, more spiritual activity in the world. And the way things are in this world suits them. They've no desire to let go, to allow things on earth to be shaped by God's plan for the world as it is in heaven. And when we choose to be and follow Jesus, we are invited to be a part of that whole restoration, renewal, reconciliation of all things. But it means that we're caught in the middle of all of that. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, God's grace has saved you because of your faith in Christ. Your salvation doesn't come from anything you do, it's God's gift. It's not based on anything you have done. No one can brag about that. We are God's creation. Now we can do good works. Long ago, God prepared these works for us to do. God prepared these works for us to do. God is in the process of reconciling all things to himself, putting the whole world back together again. And we each, in our small way, have a place in his plan. He has carved out a space for you, for me, for all of us. There are things that he has prepared for us to do. But as I say, that places us in a battle zone. Not against individuals, because our world is very good at demonizing other individuals. We're not in that game. But there are forces alive and at work in this world, resistant to God and to his plans for the world. And there are kind of two approaches we can kind of take to all of this stuff. There's kind of two ends of a spectrum, you might say. One is to deny that they even exist, or to take them too lightly. And do that with any threat in life, and it's unlikely to end well. The other is to give them too much credit, and make them too powerful, or take an unhealthy interest in them. You know, sometimes I hear people blame the devil for stuff that is just there. One story that's always stuck with me, and I can, I can still remember the person telling me it. I can still remember the look in their face, they're telling me, and it's like we're going back nearly 20 years. And uh, Mr. Fred telling me about they were in church one morning, and, uh, and somebody came into the church this morning and they said, you Pastor, you've got to pray for me. The devil is having a real go with me this morning. And he says, oh, tell me about it. Tell me about it. What, 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 what's happened? He says, well, I went to the bank this morning. Uh, I stopped. I just went to the cash machine. I got money out. And I got a parking ticket. In the two minutes I was away. And my friend said, well, we parked illegally. Well, yeah. Well, was something like I can see my car. It was something there. My friend said, Well, with all respect, it might not be the devil having a go at you, it might be the local council. 
Because yes, there will be, but there will be other times when we do feel like we're really under attack. And it takes a lot of wise discernment. But there have been several times in my life when I've gone through a whole series of things or a number of things are going on around me. And people I trust have suggested to me there might be something deeper going on here. There might be another dimension to this. Something that is trying to distract me and knock me off course. And some people can be obsessed with darkness, evil, Satan, whatever you want to call it. And they get quite fearful about it. So whenever you think of all this stuff, however you weigh it up, it's worth bearing in mind. We do not live in a world where dark and light, where good and evil are equal opposites. That's not the Christian story. Jesus warned his disciples that in the world they would have trouble, but that they should take heart because he has overcome the world. In 1 John, John tells us that when we come to Jesus, the spirit that is in us is greater than the spirit that is in the world. Darkness is not unequal to light. Turn on the light and darkness has nowhere to go. So there is a healthy balance to be struck. Awareness and care, yeah, but not an obsession. And above all, we need to bear in mind we are not sent into the battle alone, nor are we sent out ill-equipped. God has not only prepared our part in his plans for the world in advance, he doesn't send us out lacking equipment, or however we might fail with inadequate or unreliable equipment. He offers us all we need to fulfill his purpose. And that is what this full armour of God thinks about. And it's interesting what the purpose of the armour is. It isn't about going out on the attack. It's about putting on all God's armour so you can remain strong. Put on all God's armour so you will be able to stand up to anything. And after you have done everything you can, you will still be standing. It's about standing your ground. It's about not being knocked off course. It's about I am going to keep going whatever is thrown at me. And notice twice Paul says put on the whole armour. Because some of us might find it easier to put on some pieces rather than others. And it's the full armour that fully equips us for all that God calls us to do. And, and, and it's also, as I said about this stuff I before earlier, is something that we have to make a choice to put on. The best resourced army in the world would not be protected if they refused to use what was at their disposal. Likewise, at the start of the COVID pandemic, if we had huge stockpiles of PPE, if it was just left in storerooms, it wouldn't have helped anyone. And so it is with the armour of God. God doesn't send us out alone. He goes with us. But he resources with what we need. But we have to take it up and put it on. And at the centre of it all is truth. So 
was like the belt of truth. And a belt didn't just hold a Roman soldier's trousers up. It held the whole armour together. And so we need to be people of truth. And I would argue that we need to be people of truth now, perhaps more than any other time in most of our lifetimes. Because we live in what is often called a post-truth world. We are overloaded with information. And we're prone, all of us, me as much as you, to take what suits us and run with that. And there are plenty of people who are quite happy to twist stuff up to suit their agendas. And I find it incredibly sad when I see how often Christians, people who take the name of Jesus, get sucked in by conspiracy theories truths and the like. We are called to value truth. To be people of truth. And we're called to be people of righteousness. People who will trust God to help them do what is right. People who will truly seek what God's will is for a time and a place. And we will seek God's will to be done here and now as it is in heaven. And we are called to be people of peace. The Roman soldier's footwear was famously an incredible innovation that enabled them to handle basically any terrain and travel further and faster than all of their enemies. And God comes to offer us peace, knowing that whatever the terrain, uphill, downhill, easy, hard, we have his presence. We can know his peace. But also peace with each other. Because that was a key part of Paul's message to the Ephesians. That Jesus is the one who brings us peace, who brings us together, destroying the barriers we put up against one another. Jesus' purpose in coming was to create a new, one new humanity, making peace. In Paul's world, this was about Jew and Gentile, but his vision was so much bigger. Jesus came and preached peace to those who were near, peace to those who were far away. His renewal, restoration, reconciliation extended to everyone. And Paul urged us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because when we turn on each other, when we bicker and fight, we make the terrain a lot harder. And it is harder to get anything done or to go anywhere. We need to put on whatever helps us to live at peace with God, with others, with ourselves. <coughs> and when we shield ourselves with faith and constantly hold in our minds that we are loved by a God who has given himself for us, and when we lay hold of the Spirit who empowers us for living, we will be fully equipped to take our place 
however great or small, in joining God in the healing the world of its brokenness, in the renewal, the restoration, the reconciliation of all the things. And that is the purpose of the full armour of God. To help us keep going, even when the going gets tough, as it does. For life is hard. And the life of faith is hard. God has plans, longings, and purposes for his world, and those plans, longings, and purposes are good. And he has a place for us in there. But that doesn't make it easy. At times it is, it does feel, it will feel like we're sent into a battle. But our best response isn't just to fight back. It's to put on the armour God has given us keep on doing what God has called us to do. And take heart. <coughs> for we're not sent alone. God goes with us. God never loses sight of us and he won't fail us. And we won't be sent out lacking equipment or inadequately or unreliably covered. His victory, though not fully within our experience yet, is assured that he can bring us through all things and will complete what he has started the renewal restoration and reconciliation of all things grace 